Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 363 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Matt Barton. He's a professor of English at St. Cloud University in Minnesota, and he's written several books about video game history, including Vintage Games and Honoring the Code. He's also the host of the popular YouTube show Matt Chat, which features interviews with leading game designers, with a special emphasis on computer role-playing games of the 80s and 90s. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Dungeons and Desktops, The History of Computer Role-Playing Games 2nd Edition, which he wrote with Shane Stacks. And now here's our interview with Matt Barton. All right, so we're here with Matt Barton. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being on the show. I've been a fan of your YouTube channel for a long time, so I'm excited to be able to talk to you. Oh, great. Um, so my first question is, you've said that your first CRPG that you ever played was The Bard's Tale. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's the first one I have any solid memories of. I, I remember being, heck, I must have been about six or seven years old. I don't <laughs> quite remember. I just remember my grandmother had a Commodore 64 computer that she did taxes on, and you know, she did a lot of babysitting. I so I'd load up this weird game called Bard's Tale. Uh, create a party of characters. And that was really the fun for me back then, just being a kid, creating some characters. Of course, I would die almost immediately after leaving the Adventurer's Guild, but, you know, that was okay. Just let me go back and create some more characters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was certainly my experience yeah. playing Bard's Tale, is that I don't think I ever made it more than about 15 feet from the uh, Adventurer's Guild. Yeah, it's a, I had a lot more patience back then for that sort of thing. But Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I never really played Dungeons & Dragons, the tabletop game. You know, I, of course, heard about it. I watched the cartoon and uh, things like that. So it was, you know, kind of, uh, it seemed like it was in that vein. You know, the Bard's still. So that was kind of another draw, too. So I didn't have kids around that were interested in this stuff. So uh, it's about, I guess it was a way to immerse myself into that sort of fantasy setting. You say in the book that you had a pirated copy initially and you didn't even have the instructions <laughs> manual or anything? Yeah, although I have, I have been granted amnesty by... <laughs> Mr. Fargo for that, for his uh, later Bard's Tale uh, Kickstarter project. Yeah, everything was pirated, you know. It was, wasn't very uncommon back then. You just would have a, you know, the home the home copies with this handwritten label, Bard's Tale, one, two, whatever. Uh, the problem with a game like that, though, and I had this problem, too, with Wizardry, was a lot of the stuff, if you didn't have the manual, you're kind of SOL. You know, with the, like, like knowing the names of spells and things. I'm trying to remember what it was about Bard's Tale. There was something, seemed like there was some subtle copy protection with that game. Uh, you might remember, <laughs> you might know more than I do about it at this point. I mean, I haven't played Bard's Tale since, yeah, since I was eight years old, too, or something. Uh, I think, I feel like it might have asked you to look up words in the manual or something, but I, I don't really remember. Yeah, I can't remember. I might be getting my memory, my wires crossed with uh, Wizardry, but I remember uh, definitely Wizardry would make you type in a little code for the spells. You know, the first, I mean, because a lot of those games were hard. I mean, those those early CRPGs. And the first one I ever played oh, yeah. was uh, Wizard's Crown. And, oh, yeah. And that's... again, I was, you know, eight years old, and I, I couldn't make heads or tails of that game. Even I, don't know if I, could make, I don't know if I could make heads or tails of that game now. <laughs> that, was, that was a very tactically complicated game. You know, those were the guys that uh, went on to make the Pool of Radiance gold box engine based on that. They simplified it. 
I guess in some ways. What'd you have like 13 characters or something crazy on that? <laughs> I don't even remember, but yeah, I mean, I just, you even say in the book that there were all these options for, you know, you could lie prone. I mean, it, there was so many, it was just this, this overwhelming <laughs> number of menus yeah, and everything. Pretty much every key on the keyboard <laughs> did something. Yeah, that was crazy. But yeah, I wanted to ask you about Pool of Radiance because, which is, if people don't know, basically the first official Dungeons and Dragons uh, CRPG. Um, but you say in the book, it wasn't until I planted my foot on the corpse of the evil dragon Tyrant Thraxus <laughs> that I knew what it meant to love a computer game. Never oh, before yeah. had a game held me so deeply in its power. You're giving me goosebumps. Who wrote that? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a turning point for me. And, you know, with Pool of Radiance, again, that was the first time I saw, you know, it had Dungeons & Dragons. It's all officially licensed. I think it was TSR uh, license at that point. It wasn't Wizards of the uh, Coast yet. Uh, but published by SSI. And I, I remember getting this game. I think it was my birthday. Uh, or my birthday was coming up. My grandmother bought it for me. And she wouldn't let me play it. You know, until my birthday. I think it was like a couple weeks out, right? But but I convinced her to let me uh, read the manuals. You know, I said it's a very complicated game. I want to read the instructions so that when the, you know, when my birthday comes around, I can just jump right in. <laughs> so, so some for so however I was, I guess, uh, you know, my rhetorical power was such that she agreed <laughs> to that. And but man, that was it was kind of a. Yeah, I don't know how to describe this, but it was so exciting reading about the game. And thinking about what it would be like, kind of fantasizing this, <laughs> just based on these, <laughs> the journal. And then, you know, that game actually has a really nice manual and a journal and everything that comes with it. But <laughs> even the code wheel was fascinating. <laughs> so, yeah, I was really raring to go when I uh, finally got to be my, my birthday. I don't think anybody saw me for a couple of days after that. But you didn't read the Adventurer's Journal, right? Because so many of the major scenes in the game, it actually has little prose passages in this book, and you have to look up the the right one at the right time. Yeah, and it, it says in the journal you're you're not supposed to, or you'll be cursed, or whatever. <laughs> and you know, of course, being the uh, the good boy I was back then, of course, I didn't read the you know the whole thing twice or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I actually planted some uh, fake journal entries in there. And so, yeah, I didn't know. You know, it was fun. I don't think it really spoiled too much. But, yeah, you're supposed to uh, not refer to that uh, journal except at certain points of the game. It'll say, oh, you heard a tale in the tavern. Uh, read, Go read Tavern Tale number 12. Or uh, the, the description of this room is in <laughs> journal entry 20. You know, something along those lines. You said that the other kids, like you didn't know anyone else who was playing any of these CRPGs? No, not really. I mean, most of my friends had a Nintendos. You know, they were playing Mario and stuff like that. And I didn't know anybody. It wasn't really until high school, I think, I finally found a guy that was also playing. Uh, uh, he had a game called Hero Quest, a board game. And I remember talking to him a little bit and figuring out that we liked Tolkien. <laughs> it was just kind of, it's almost like a, an epiphany, like, ooh. You know, we really kind of. Became best friends shortly thereafter. But yeah, I mean, for the longest time, I mean, nobody, everybody, I mean, I grew up in a very rural place in uh, the deep south of uh, Louisiana. So to, to the extent that anybody had heard of Dungeons and Dragons, they thought it was some kind of Satanism. So did people try to discourage you from playing, uh, playing the CRPGs? Yeah, and you know, a few, nobody in my immediate family, but you know. 
I can't remember any, if any teachers or anything said anything about it, but that's a good question. I don't think, I, I think I might have heard a preacher one time kind of lump Dungeons and Dragons in with, uh, <laughs> you know, what, bestiality or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody ever really discouraged me. You know, my dad was, uh, he was fine with it. I mean, did you have any sense at that time that you were, this was going to be a part of your life for the rest of your life, that you loved it that much? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was, it wasn't just the games, you know, I was, uh, the Pool of Radiance had a novel, as you can get, and I read that. I was always thinking at some point I'd be writing, either writing games, uh, or writing fantasy novels, maybe, or I just want to do something, some kind of writing. <laughs> I didn't know I would end up writing about the games, you know, in this capacity, but, you know, it worked out. I mean, because you became an English professor, so how did that happen? How did that happen? I, You know, I ask myself that on a regular <laughs> basis. Uh, how did this happen to me? <laughs> oh, I, you know, like a lot of uh, starry-eyed freshmen, you know, I wanted to go into creative writing and, and write best-selling fantasy novels, basically be the next uh, George R.R. R. Martin or, or uh, Raymond uh, Feist, you know, somebody like that, but... Uh, somewhere along the way, a uh, professor said, you know, there's this little thing you might want to consider called making a living. <laughs> you know, it's not that big of a shift uh, to go into this, you know, the more uh, writerly, the more, you know, technical side of uh, of an English major. Learn how to uh, teach writing, learn how to do composition. You already like computers, you know, and there's a lot of stuff you can do around uh, computers and writing software and things of that sort. So he kind of taught me into the uh, studying rhetoric, basically rhetoric and composition. And I never really looked back on that. It's it's a really great field. I mean, you do have to grade papers. That's something I never saw myself doing. <laughs> yeah, but everything else is there. You could still you're still writing. You're still uh, interacting with people that are really interested in the same stuff you are. So I think it worked out really well. Now, in your college classes that you teach now, do they involve fantasy or role-playing games or anything, or is that sort of a separate aspect of your life? Well, a lot of them do. I have a course called, uh, well, a couple of courses. Uh, there's one called, um, I just proposed actually, called Understanding Video Games. And I kind of see that. I don't know if, I'm sure you've probably read uh, Scott McCloud and his Understanding Comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of do something like that, but... You know, of course, that would be about video games instead. So that that's still kind of in the planning uh, phases at this point. But that, that'll probably be the closest thing I've done so far. Uh, but I also have a, cor a course called Rhetoric of Popular Culture. And for that one, we, we certainly do a lot of games. And uh, I also like The Walking Dead and Zombies a lot, so we do some of that in there. But uh, yeah, pretty much every course I find some way to bring in games. I mean, do your students know, do they know your Matt Chat videos or do they ever, have they ever watched them? <laughs> Sometimes they do. I, I don't really make a big deal about it because I think it's more fun when, you know, at some point in the middle of the semester, uh, some student will come up to me and they're like, are you the same Matt Barton that does Matt Chat? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I guess I, I, it must be totally different personas if you don't recognize me. Yeah. Cause, cause you're in these <laughs> cause videos. I, I'm, I'm right there on the video. I mean, unless it's like an identical twin. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. You know, it's not to the point where I'm walking around in public and people recognize, oh, you're, you know, the guy from that, you know, it's not like that. 
Uh, but yeah, I think it's kind of a pleasant surprise, and students figured that out. But but you know, just to my uh, the videos I do for my online classes and things, I have a separate YouTube channel for that. Hmm. Um. I mean, you say in the book that you think that CRPGs are actually really educational. Oh yeah, absolutely. Why don't you talk about that? Because you you say that um Robert Reich talk about Robert Reich and his four basic skills. Uh well, him and James Paul G. Uh, there's a couple other ones. There's a uh, Jane McGonigal. She's got some TED talks where she, she they talk about this. A lot of it. They, there's a word gamification that comes up sometimes. Uh, but just for me, what it amounts to is it's not so much that you learn valuable content from playing these games, uh, but you do learn sort of habits of thinking, I guess is the way to the way I write about it in here. So really, it, it kind of comes down to the scientific method, learning about statistical reasoning. If you really are good at these games and you play them enough, you'll start to you'll start to pick up on things like, well, I should use this weapon instead of that weapon or. Uh, here's a different kind of creature. They have these kinds of resistances. You know, it's th- it's that kind of uh, observations. And then you try something, you measure the results, uh, you modify your tactics along the way. And, and really, uh, even though these are fights with rats or skeletons or <laughs> zombies or whatever the case may be, uh, you're kind of training your mind uh, to approach problems in a certain a certain way. Uh, that's just really just straight out of a you know a science textbook. I got a quote in there from, I think his name is, I know his last name is Moses. I forget his first name. But anyway, the father of statistics uh, defines statistics as learning from experience. And that's how he defines the, the, the entire field. And, and really, I think this is crystallized in role-playing games, not just CRPGs, but, you know, any role-playing games. Because that's really what you're doing, uh, I guess, somewhat a step removed because it's your character's that are learning from their experience and gaining levels. Uh, but at the same time, you as a player are too, because you know, you're learning how to play that game better. I mean, are there examples of like specific examples you could point to of people who played a lot of CRPGs and now they're CEO of Microsoft or anything like that? Oh yeah. There's, there's countless. Uh, most of the people I'm familiar with are of course from the games, the games industry. Uh, but Trip Hawkins, you know, talk about him a little bit in the book, the Electronic Arts founder. Uh, so he talks a lot about how he was he was even doing stuff similar to D&D before D&D came out. There was uh, some baseball games that were basically, uh, you know, a lot of overlap uh, with wargaming there. A lot of statistical reasoning. I think it was called Stratomatic. If, uh, my, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was called Stratomatic. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but yeah, pretty much any uh, big... Figure in the games industry has played uh, either D and D or uh, CRPGs. Yeah, other fields though, I'd be kind of curious. I haven't done a lot of uh, uh, work there. <laughs> I don't know how many. Certainly, a lot of professors I talked to have played D and D. You know, I think would agree. Uh, I don't know. What do you What do you find? You've talked to a lot of uh, big names from many fields. Do they mention uh, role playing games? I think like yeah, I think Dungeons and Dragons, like the tabletop Dungeons and Dragons. I've certainly heard people talk about that as you know developing leadership skills and uh, mm-hmm. group management skills and stuff like that, and uh, making deadlines because you know being a dungeon master is a ton of work. I'm not sh- I'm I'm not thinking offhand of any 
of a lot of examples of CRPGs, but I mean, I definitely like what you say makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, when you're talking about Robert Reich, you say that he, he, he says that the skills for the future are abstraction, system thinking, experimentation and collaboration and that CRPGs help you hone all those skills. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people will say, well, why not? You know, isn't Dungeons and Dragons better for that than uh, the computer versions? Or why not play uh, something like World of Warcraft? Or I guess a Fortnite, something like this. <laughs> but, you know, as I kind of argue in the book, uh, the problem with that is when you get to collaboration. Uh, a lot of the, you know, if you just kind of luck out, sometimes you'll find a good group of people uh, to play with. But, you know, more often than not, uh, you kind of have a negative experience with collaboration. You know, just as coming back to being a professor, this is something, you know, students tell me this all the time. And I'll say, well, why don't you collaborate on this project or let's have a group project? <laughs> Everybody just groans. <laughs> oh, God, anything but that. I hate this. It's just because of these bad experiences uh, working with people. Uh, but it's really just that, you know, they haven't really been trained to do it, right? They don't uh, – they're not used to working with other people. It's not schools or a lot of these games don't uh, promote that or privilege that very much. Uh, but a lot of these computer role-playing games like the Wizardry series or some of the Ultimas, uh, you you have a group of people, but they're – or the Baldur's Gate series is another good example of this. Uh, you're sort of controlling these characters, but it's an idealized form of collaboration, right? So you figure out, well, if I do this, this person will lead the party. Or, you know, here's the way to, uh, you know, butter this person up to keep them in the party, leverage their uh, special skills, whatever that is. So I think that kind of, uh, those kind of games really do train you to be a better collaborator. Yeah, it's almost like your party members are your employees and you have to know what exactly. their strengths and weaknesses are and you know utilize right, them to their best. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not just about making one character super strong. You know, it's about leveraging all the uh, different party members and you know, the better games this would be a very diverse set of skills and, and characters. So I think yeah, it's a great experience for uh, for management or collaboration. Yeah. Well, so talk about um Dungeons and Desktops. How did that come about? The first edition? Uh, the first edition. Well, what had happened was I was part of a website called Armchair Arcade, which is really one of the first uh, blogs about vintage and retro games, vintage uh, computers. And I don't know how the idea occurred to me, but one day I was just like, why not do some articles or some blog posts about the history of uh, computer role-playing games? Uh, so this kind of just started off as informal blog post. Uh, but when I posted the first one, which I think was the, like the Dark Ages, maybe, yeah, I think it was the Dark Ages, which, you know, Plato games and um, the really, really early mainframe stuff. <laughs> but it was like, boom, you know, it just took over. Uh, slash dot, Gama Sutra. And it just got tremendous attention, this uh, blog post. Uh, it's kind of like, whoa, you know, I really got a tiger by the tail here. And Gama Sutra approached me and said, Okay, why don't we uh, let, let us pay you? <laughs> you know, uh, do your other uh, posts on this for us, and we'll pay you to do that, and you'll get a lot more publicity. So it worked out pretty well for them and uh, for me. But at some point, a publisher, A.K. Peters, I guess, had approached uh, Gama Sutra just looking for topics. You know, they, they wanted some book ideas, I guess. Uh, so the guy I'd been working with, Simon Carlos, over there, uh, told him about me and these blog posts. Uh, so the 
publisher got in touch and we started talking about maybe expanding this into a uh, into a book and of course this is really really exciting for me this is a dream I'd had all the way back since I was a kid you know actually publish a book <laughs> <laughs> and they even uh, let me get uh Clyde Caldwell who done uh, all the paintings for my favorite games the pool of radiance and all those so got to license the uh, one of his paintings from a dragon magazine cover I didn't even know you could do that, but I guess that had been a Dragon Magazine cover, so he, we were able to get that for my book. So yeah, it all came together really, really, uh, I guess you could say that kind of launched my career, really. You know, as a professor, too, you want to have books published. So then what sort of uh, response did you get to the book from readers or reviewers or whatever? Well, generally pretty good. I mean, the book, uh, the first edition did have a few problems. The uh, the screenshots were kind of the bugbear. Uh, they kind of—I uh, don't want to talk too bad about the <laughs> about the screen. No, but the, uh, these were kind of small and grainy uh, images, and a lot of reviewers just that. Uh, uh, you know, they criticize that point, and they—you uh, know—I can see where they're coming from because video games. You know, it's right there in the name, right? Video. <laughs> you know, these are very artistic. They're very graphics. Uh, intensive medium and it's it's really uh important to be able to see the if you're going to have a screenshot you know people want to see well first of all do you have the screenshot <laughs> uh, but secondly they really want to be able to make out the details and, and be able to compare like well like what did the bard's tail look like that was you know mid 80s you know how does that compare to say Baldur's gate and when you can really get a good look at those uh, screenshots and uh com com you know compare and contrast those i think that really helps helps you understand uh, just how significant that evolution was. You know, just being able to look at those images. So that was one of the big criticisms. Uh, and I think another of the criticisms was um, I, I was just trying to pack too much in, so I, I really didn't want to let any game, no matter, no matter how obscure. <laughs> you know, I really wanted this thing to be comprehensive and talk about everything. Uh, but what the, the end result of that was a lot of just little... Uh, you know, maybe like a half a paragraph about a game, and then a, here comes another game and another game, and it kind of disrupted the narrative. You know, it kind of gets a, a little bit uh, patchwork, I guess is is the word for that. Kind of basically disrupted the uh, the continuity. So I got a little bit of criticisms on that, and then of course uh, typos and just little howlers, <laughs> <laughs> errors creep in. <laughs> you know, some of these games I hadn't played as a kid, and I just. Might, I might have booted them up and played them for a few minutes just to, enough to kind of get a feel for it. Uh, so sometimes that I made mistakes. So I was wondering, I mean, if, yeah, because, I mean, these, these books cover hundreds, if not more, games. And some of these oh, yeah. games take like 100 to 200 hours or something to beat. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no way you – no, there's no human way you could play all the games in this book start to finish. So how like how that. many game how many like what percentage of the um, games mentioned in the book would you say you've actually played for a significant amount of time? Oh, that's a good question. What do you mean by significant amount of time? I guess is the I definitely haven't played many or uh, that's a good. I'm trying to think of the ones I've definitely played all the way through. I think you could probably sort of tell by reading, you know, how much I say about a game. <laughs> it's probably a pretty good indication of. Yeah, to the you know the what extent I played it, uh, but I played most of the Might and Magic's all the way through, and of course the Baldur's Gate. 
You know, I would say pretty much all the major games I've definitely played all the way through. And some of the lesser ones are just kind of hit or miss. But I'm still working on that even today, right? Trying to play some of the lesser lesser game, lesser known games. I, mean, I thought it was interesting because you said that at the time that you wrote that book that you thought that the CRPG field was actually dying and you thought this mm-hmm. was going to be sort of a love letter to a, a lost art. Yeah. Yeah, well, it really did seem like that because uh, with the first Dungeons and Desktops book, World of Warcraft, <laughs> or Craft, I should say, uh, that game was is I think it was kind of at its peak at that time, and I, I forget how many. It was just incredible number of subscribers on that, and you know, even talking to people like Fargo of uh, In Exile, and they're I don't know, I don't, actually, it's a good question that they have In Exile back then, but even a lot of these. Uh, you know, the legacy developers were saying, no, there's just no market for this. No publishers are interested in a single-player, uh, epic-scope computer role-playing game. And it was really kind of depressing to me. And I almost wonder, looking back, if one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was just to sort of remind people of how great this <laughs> genre was. <laughs> kind of inspire more developers to uh, to try their hand at making a CRPG, or at least getting more players interested, create more of a of a market. So some of the uh, you know some of these folks like uh, maybe Fargo could say, look, there's obviously a lot of interest in this genre. There's even a book out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where they're talking about all my early games. But, but yeah, that was a it was definitely depressing. And I remember later talking to some of the uh, some of these developers that had read the book, and they were saying, yeah, I would go to these big gaming conventions, CG. Uh, CG or uh, E3 or something like that, or or GDC, and I would say, yeah, we we did. I, I worked on Wizardry. Or I worked on uh, Bard's Tale or something, and they would just be met with blank stares. Like, what is that? <laughs> you know, and that was just ugh, terrible. So I really think though that it didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't have Kickstarter back then or any kind of crowdfunding uh, thing. So anybody doing single-player RPGs, it was like basically a, somebody in a you know very low-funded uh, single-person team, sort of a setup with low distribution. I don't even know. I think was Steam even out back then? Yeah, I'm, 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 not, I'm not even yeah, sure, I'm not, yeah. Yeah, I'm not even sure if the independents really had a good way to publish their stuff yet. Uh, so anyway, a lot changed in a short period of time after that book. Well, so talk about too. So yeah, so you had the book come out, and then you also started up this Matt Chat YouTube series. So talk about how oh, yeah. did you decide to start that up? Well, it started off basically as a way to uh, promote the book. I was kind of struck by. You know, again, the the visual, you know, how intensely visual this medium is. And as good as screenshots, let's not even get back into that, you know. But <laughs> I was thinking, well, if screenshots would be great, wouldn't it be even better if you could actually see the games uh, in a video format? Now, so this was kind of the early days of YouTube. I think they limited you to maybe uh, five, ten minutes. <laughs> so I really wasn't able to do much. <laughs> uh, but my original plan was just take a different game, uh, show the some of the gameplay, talk about what I you know said in the book, basically, and then kind of expand from there. And then finally it got to the point 
where I realized I could uh, record Skypes, Skype conversations. That's sort of like what you do, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, once I got to that point, I, I thought, why not see if I could contact some of these developers and interview them? Because I really hadn't done much of that in the first book. I just would play the games, uh, not really worry about who made it uh, or, you know, what they were like. And so I really got into that part of it really hard and heavy. And this is what Mad Chat really was. It's like, here's the folks who made the games. Or that's what it became, I should say. You know, here's the folks that made the games. Here's what they were thinking. Here's what they're like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, here's why. Here's the problems they were struggling with. Here's here's the solutions they came up with. So, you know, I've had a lot of fun with that over the years. Was it hard to get in touch with any of those people or to convince them to be on your YouTube show? Not really. You know, a lot of them were just flabbergasted by like, you. somebody wants to talk <laughs> to me? You know, really? You want me to be on a, a, a show? <laughs> you know, I didn't think, you know, nobody's even asked me about this game in, you know, a decade. Uh, I'm not even really sure I remember much about it. You know, that, that was the kind of attitude I would be confronted with usually. Uh, but yeah, it's it it really more the opposite problem. It's kind of this embarrassment of riches, right? The, <laughs> once I started doing this, I get people contacting me and saying, look, I, you know, here's who I am. I worked on this series. Uh, you know, I saw your interview with, say, Jeff McCord or whoever it was. And, you know, I've got some stuff I like to talk about as well. Uh, so it's just one after another. Boom, boom, boom. It's a lot of untold stories. Well, right. We were talking earlier about Pool of Radiance, which you said was made by a company called SSI. And mm -hmm. I mean, SSI, I feel I felt like they were really popular at the time. I mean, I played so many of their games, um, but then I would go looking for information about, you know, who made these games or what was this company like or what were they thinking or trying to accomplish. And I just couldn't, couldn't really find anything until I, um, you know, until I saw interviews like your interview with um, Joel Billings. Um I mean, was there anything out there about a lot of these uh, developers, or, or were you really the first person to? Uh, I, to I was definitely the first person to interview many of them on in a video format. I mean, they most most of them, the big names, of course. You know, they'd done interviews for magazines. It's basically about about it. But I, I'm imagining most of those were not available. I mean, you know, those interviews had appeared in magazines and they weren't online anywhere. Um, yeah, I don't know about legally online. <laughs> I got a lot of my information uh, from a, uh, what was it? It was a magazine, Computer Games Magazine, I think. Could be Computer Gaming Computer World? Computer Gaming, yeah, it's it, Computer Gaming World. Yeah, that was available. Somebody posted the whole archive of that in a, uh, a BitTorrent file. So I was able to download all that, and a lot of those would have interviews in them. But, you know, it's a magazine, so they might have a one-page interview you know, five or six questions, but yeah, not many of them had, there's a few of them, like the really big names, uh, somebody like Richard Garriott, Lord British, uh, they had been interviewed for books. There's a book called uh, Dungeons, and, Dungeons and Dreamers and Hackers uh, by Stephen Levy. Uh, so there's a few of them that have been interviewed. Yeah, but for a lot of them, this was, you know, when I talked to him, it was the first time that ever been seriously interviewed uh, by somebody that was, uh, you know, familiar with their work and wasn't just, you know, interested in whatever their late last uh, latest game was that they're promoting at the moment. I thought the thing was so interesting because, you know, because I was always so curious about SSI and the Joel Billings um, 
Or no, in in the book, um, you you talked to this guy Craig Roth. He had been one of the early SSI guys. He'd oh yeah, Shard of Spring. Shard yeah. of Spring, and he said that you know a lot of those early games they were made by just one person or or maybe a couple people, and that with Pool of Radiance, that was the first time he'd ever seen just this big team with you know dedicated artists and dedicated programmers making a game, and he could just see like oh this is this is the future. Everything's really changing here. Yeah, I think I sort of have mixed feelings about all that. You know, I just recently talked to Brent Knowles of uh, Bioware, who had been working on uh, – he, he did Baldur's – worked on Baldur's Gate 2, Neverwinter Nights, uh, Dragon Age Origins. And he kind of told us some some similar stories, a little slightly different in scale. But uh, there's this thing about uh, periods where just a small team or maybe even just one person – it's not so much about the size of the team. It's whether uh, one person or the small group really has control over the project Uh, because what happens is is as things start to scale upwards uh, the control is kind of uh, it becomes more of a game made by committee right there's kind of like a movie like a big Hollywood production Uh, I guess you could imagine that but the producer even doesn't really have much power or say so so you get these uh, uh, sort of watered down uh, projects a lot of you know it's trying to please everybody kind of projects without a lot of uh, creative vision, I guess is, there's. I guess that's really what it comes down to. There's not a unified vision uh, like you get in those uh, early games like the Shard of Springs or the, uh, you know, I look at all the early Ultima games where it was mostly uh, Lord British. I mean, I think you really see a huge difference when you go from, say, the, oh, something like Ultima uh, 3 or 4 and then compare that to the <laughs> Ultima 9 <laughs> or if you look at the uh, Ultima Online, you know, something with a lot bigger scale. So I, th- yeah, I think you really lose something uh, when you move from that, the small teams. Uh, but what's really exciting to me is in this uh, era that we're in now, all these development tools and assets are getting to the point where we're kind of back uh, to where just one person or a small team can make a, you know, make their own CRPG just like, you know, Garriott was doing back in the in the 80s. Uh, but have it not look like it was something made back in the 80s, right? <laughs> uh, but using something like uh, Unity or all these uh, uh, tools, you can make something that really is competitive, looks just as good as any of the you know $60 games out there. Just uh, played uh, Druid Stone. So this is some of the almost human guys. So they even got to a smaller team from, if you don't know about them, they worked on The Legend of Grimrock games which really excellent games but very small team they got even smaller to make this uh druidstone game but it's just the tools are such uh where you know it looks it looks magnificent to me plays great you know if you're willing if the just as long as people are willing to put the time in there to really polish it if they are talented you know you don't have to have this giant team and you know hundreds of millions of dollars to make something that's really Uh, really impressive. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because this whole kickstarted CRPG movement Mm -hmm. was really started with Wasteland 2. And there's kind of a funny story where you were interviewing Brian Fargo on your Matt Chat show and that kind of (laughs) played into that. Yeah, I forget how it comes up because he was kind of a little bit despondent, I think, in that first part of the interview, you know, he's telling me all about how, you know, things were great and then things started to decline and they kind of had to work on these, uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to stay afloat, right? You know, make games that 
they can make money on that the publisher will uh, show interest in. And if you watch his uh, promo for the uh, first Wasteland game, he's got a kid in there that's it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> but he kind of satirizes what he was dealing with. Yeah, he has, is, uh, he has a little kid who's, you know, playing the um, uh, video game company executive who doesn't who's never heard of any of his old games before. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But yeah, I asked him at one point, you know, if you were going to, if you're going to make Wasteland 2 today, uh, you know, what would it be like? What would be your plans for that? And you could tell he just he just kind of his eyes just kind of uh, widened there for a minute, and you could see he <laughs> could literally see, <laughs> you know, on his face like he's really thinking this through. It's like the first time it had ever really occurred to him. Like, well, what would that be like? <laughs> it's like this light bulb goes off. Uh, it's really an impressive moment uh, to have captured on uh, video. I think I don't know if that's ever happened before. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, yeah, and, really and it's clear that he hasn't really thought about it uh, up yeah. to that point. Um, you know, he has to sort of pause and, and really think about it. And then within, you know, a year or so of that, he, he's actually kickstarting Wasteland too. so... Yeah, and he has acknowledged it. It kind of comes back to that that moment of that interview where he was, uh, you know, I asked him that question, he started thinking about it, he got more and more excited about it. Uh, you know, think too about the relationship I had with him during that interview you know, here's somebody who kind of grew up playing his games, big fan of uh, the series, uh, who's really excited to, you know, to talk to him. It must have been really invigorating for him. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just talking to people who never even heard of this stuff before. Uh, and to realize, hey, you know, this is, I'm just one guy, but I represent, you know, thousands and thousands of people just like me that would love to play, love to see a wasteland too. You know, so I like to think I really, ha- I really played a role in that. Yeah, I think so. I think you deserve probably about half the credit for wasting <laughs> too. <laughs> well, I don't know if I, I'd go that far, but yeah, just a lot of people they don't realize that there's still a lot of interest in that. You know, people are. That's why I tell people all the time. You know, if you really like a, if you're if you're playing some old game, you know, it's not that hard to figure out who, uh, you know, who made it and. Send them, a, send them a shout out on Twitter or something. You know, you really do make their day uh, with stuff like that. So, yeah. Well, so talk about, so there, there's now just out the second edition of Dungeons and Desktop. So just talk about why you uh, decided to do a second edition. Well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, I think enough time had passed for one thing. And we've been talking all during this interview about some of these uh, big developments. But, you know, I really, uh, I think I'd had enough time to think about what I liked about the first edition and what I could have done better. <laughs> had a lot of time <laughs> uh, to think about that. Uh, so that was a big part of it. You know, I really wanted, I was kind of excited to go back in and sort of address what I saw as the biggest problems which we've already talked about, just the maintaining a more coherent narrative, of course, uh, fixing the, the screenshots, adding in all the insights I've gained from something like 10 years of uh, interviewing uh, these game developers and game designers. I mean, I really, you know, I, I wanted to call it advanced Dungeons and Desktops. <laughs> you know, publisher did what, didn't go for that idea, but you know, I really feel like I'm a lot more advanced <laughs> on the topic uh, than I you know, the first one almost feels kind of naive. You know, it's kind of the first time somebody had done a book like this. Uh, a lot of people hadn't even heard of some of these games before. Nobody had ever in- interviewed the developers. And you know, it's just a lot of uh, stuff that hadn't been done yet. 
Uh, of course, the second edition is able to incorporate all of that, all of those insights. How did Shane Stacks get involved? Uh, he was a, that's a good question. I don't know how he first got involved. It seemed like he had read the first edition and looked, figured out, found me on YouTube. And so we kind of became friends that way. But his contribution, his, his really his big contribution was he had, you know, unlike me growing up in this really, literally a village uh, in the in the woods, <laughs> he grew up in, uh, in a big enough town and he went into the Navy, I think, after when he got older. But he had played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. He, he's really up on all the tabletop role-playing games and going to other conventions and things. So he was able to fill that gap. Uh, one of his main contributions. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of a combination of that and just being good friends, work well together. I think it was his idea to do the second edition. I think he was saying, we need to do something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been long enough since you've done uh, the first edition. So he kept on with that for a while. And, and finally, oh, I remember what it was. He wanted to do a uh, a digital version. Uh, of Dungeons and Desktops. She kept talking about that, and I guess enough time had gone by where finally I'm like, why don't we just do a second edition? <laughs> and you could do the digital stuff on, you know, as part of that. And it's like, okay, let's talk to the publisher. And the publisher got really excited because this is one of the books, you know, most books, uh, they sell they sell all they're going to sell, right, in the first few months, about first six months, and then it's pretty much dead. Uh, but this is a book that's pretty much, it hasn't sold in huge numbers, but it's been a consistent seller. You know, even after all the other books I've uh, written, you know, this is the, the first edition of this book still sells more copies usually than, you know, all the other ones. Uh, so when I said second edition, they, they were really excited. There wasn't any, <laughs> well, it wasn't any hemming and hawing. They're like, <laughs> get it done quickly. <laughs> we want it, we want it as soon as you can, you know, get this thing, uh, uh, I finished up. I actually had to put the brakes on them a little bit because, you know, like I said, one of the problems with the first edition was little typos and things. You know, like I really want to put a lot of effort this time into making sure I catch all the errors I can possibly catch. But yeah, they were really excited about it. I guess everybody uh, has been impressed so far. I thought it was interesting because um, there's a note where you say that the game Torment Tides of Numenara, you say it's something like it's um, interesting, more interesting than enjoyable. And then there's yeah. a note where Shane comes in and says, no, I think this is amazing. This game's amazing or something. And that was the only place that I noticed where there was, you know, the two of you were kind of had different takes on a, on something. Yeah, that, that might be. I can't. I mean, he's got slightly different uh, picks for his, like the games we love the best. Or I don't think he's. Uh, we did a radio show recently with him. We were thinking about the games that we like the best. His favorite CRPG of all time is uh, Knights of the Old Republic, which would be that's, that'd definitely be high on my list. But you know, I guess our experiences uh, differ enough. You know, I'm a Baldur's Gate two man. <laughs> <laughs> But I can see where he's coming from on that. Yeah, but it wasn't like we were... I don't remember ever having a, a big disagreement, you know, about anything while we're writing this. Although he kind of makes... He kind of insinuates... He, he's the one that did all the jokes the first <laughs> and the last chapter. So he, he kind of makes it sound like we're this uh, Abbott and Costello <laughs> duo or something. Uh, it really wasn't anything like that, but we just kind of had more fun than anything else. 
So you must spend a lot of time thinking about what your ideal CRPG is, or do you ever think about making your own CRPG or uh, consulting on CRPG design or anything like that? Yeah, I think about that all the time. I'm really hoping to get... Uh, I've kind of been playing around with the idea for a while, but uh, hoping that maybe this summer might be the might give me a chance to really, you know, at least get my feet wet with development. I've done some small games before. Just little uh, arcade kind of games, but yeah, I mean, you can't help but think about it, right? You, you play these games and you think, well, this is, I really like this element, but why do they do this? <laughs> or I like that element from this other game. Wouldn't it be great if you, you could combine some of these things uh, into into a game, a new kind of game? Uh, but I'm I'm really kind of excited at the moment. I've got this plan. I want to do uh, something kind of like Might and Magic 6. I don't know if you played that one, The Mandate of Heaven. I played Might and Magic 4 quite a bit, but I haven't played any of the later ones. Well, the thing of the I keep coming back to this game is it's basically a first-person shooter engine uh, with the role-playing mechanics wrapped around that. Uh, so you have you have a full party, you have spells, you have all that uh, dungeons, but uh, it's basically using this first-person shooter engine. So you're kind of going around attacking things like you would in a, in a first-person shooter. And I think you know what I like, what I find appealing about that is there's these programs out there like Unity, which again are really good at making first-person shooter games, right? And so I'm thinking if I could, you know, if I was going to make a game, if it was something that would be doable for me. Uh, the less I have to reinvent the wheel, the better. And I think with uh, that sort of first-person format, and plus there hasn't been, to my knowledge, a lot of games made like that in recent years, but yet a lot of demand for it. So I think it'd be a pretty good, uh, a pretty good niche to uh, explore to see what I can do with it. I don't want to promise anything yet; it's kind of early. Uh, but yeah, certainly an aspiration of mine. I mean, I think it's interesting that you know Brian Fargo's Kickstarted games were so successful, getting millions of dollars in funding, and then um, you know SSI sort of some of those guys uh, reconstituted themselves as TSI, and they were trying to yeah. fund something called Seven Dragon Saga, and it didn't really it wasn't successful. I was just curious why you think that there was such yeah, a big I've difference seen there. That time and time again, I really think there's a disconnect sometimes with uh, the writers and the designers and the developers of games and the players. Because uh, I think, you know, unless you're, I, you know, I think some of these, uh, some of these folks, it's kind of like with Dungeons and Dragons, right? I'm, I recently started playing a bunch, for some reason I've been playing more tabletop Dungeons and Dragons than ever before. You know, what I notice is the people that are new to the game, uh, they, they want to jump into something that's very traditional, almost cliched, like very stereotyped, <laughs> just give me elves, dwarves, a dragon, you know, swords, axes. You know, just really sort of basic swords and sorcery uh, fantasy, right? Uh, that's what the that's what they would like to see. They don't mind uh, that this is the same elf tropes <laughs> that have been in place since Tolkien, right? Uh, that not only do they not mind that, they actually prefer that. Uh, whereas I think the writers and designers, developers have a different kind of mindset, right? They want to show how creative they are and how original they are, and like here's a new twist. You know, like with the Dragon Age, you know, the, the elves will be totally different in this game and we'll shave the dwarves. You know, the dwarves won't have beards. and <laughs> But it's just kind of annoying. I, It's either annoying or uh, just kind of eh uh, to so many of the players. 
Now the players that have really been hardcore about it, you know, they're they're the ones that want to go into like the like we're talking about the Numenera game. You know, somebody that's just played D and D to death. Uh, yeah, they're kind of hungry for something different, some kind of alternative. Uh, but for the masses out there, they're not really demanding that alternative because they they haven't gotten their fill of the uh, the main the main fare, right? And I think that's really a lot where role playing computer role playing games are. There hasn't been enough of these compared to the tabletop role playing games. So there's plenty of room, I think, plenty of room just for standard fantasy, swords and sorcery, <laughs> dwarves with beards and Scottish accents. You know the works. Uh, in the computer game environment. Well, that's what I was wondering with the TSI Kickstarter is that the yeah. the footage they showed, it didn't look like the gold box games. And I wonder oh, if, no. if it had looked more yeah. like that. I'm, I'm thinking of, I don't know if you followed the Thimbleweed Park um, Kickstarter, yeah, yeah. but they said that how they what they wanted that game to look like is how you remembered the yes. LucasArts games yes. looking. So it looks better, but it looks like, you know, how your your rosy memories of it, how how it looks in your memory. Yeah, that that worked out well for them. Yeah, I guarantee you, if uh, Seven Dragon Saga, because they kind of had a like a Far Eastern vibe to it, if I recall correctly, right? Uh, Yeah, I think if they had gone with something that was just more like a Wizard's Crown or or the Gold Box game, more standard fantasy, I think it would have been a shoe in. Uh, Trying to do something a little bit too beyond the pale, it's kind of like with the was it Obsidian that did that tyranny game uh they kind of the stuff that's really impressive for critics to write about and you know again they get to seem like they're really creative and original with this sort of you know, off-putting <laughs> uh setting but it just doesn't really work it's it's, it's gonna be kind of cool like I, I love planescape torment the first planescape torment it's a great games very philosophical and, and all that but uh you know it's obviously it's not going to be a, a mainstream hit you know it's more of a you know, it'd be the equivalent equivalent of like a Sundance film, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, so yeah, if I were doing, if I were, if I had been in charge of uh, this TSI project, I'd say let's just at least start like Obsidian did with their Pillars of Eternity, more standard sort of fantasy. Let's see how that goes, <laughs> and then uh, uh, then we can do this this sort of side project. We can do the more creative, original stuff kind of as a side project. Yeah, I just think if they had a video and they had like the little guys with the little animation and you kill the dragon, it's oh, like pfft, with all the um, skull and crossbones things. I mean, I think that would be, you know, that would really get the fans of those games excited. Oh, yeah, sure. I really, I would have been happy. I don't, I don't know how this, if this would have even been possible with all the licensing and everything, but I've been quite happy to play just Pool of Radiance, you know, update the uh, the interface on that, give me a, a decent UI to work with. Uh, I've been more than pleased. It's like, take my money. <laughs> Here, here's 500 bucks for your super royal, uh, collectible, uh, you know, share a jacuzzi with the developer <laughs> package, whatever. Uh, whereas I don't think this, this other game, people just really weren't all that exci- excited about. I think it kind of hit the nail on the head with that, uh, thumb- Thimbleweed Park's a really great thing. You know, cause it's like, here's, here's the reason anybody cares about this anyway, right? They have these memories. Uh, of this, of these early maniac mansion, or whatever it is, right? And so don't come at me with this totally different project. You know, just just having just because it's you involved in it is not enough. You know, the game itself needs to be similar to that to harken back to that era. 
Right. You mentioned like what the critics say. And when I think of experts on CRPGs, I think of you. And then I also think of Scorpia, who wrote all these reviews oh, yeah. for Computer Gaming World back in the day. And then um, the CRPG addict, uh, Chester Bolingbroke. And I was just curious if you had uh, interacted with either of them at all. Oh, yeah, a lot. A lot. Actually co-written some stuff with the Scorpia. And uh, yeah, CRPG addict, we're good. I don't know if I'd say we're good <laughs> chums or anything. We certainly have collaborated and talked to each other. And I'll ask, ask him questions. And he refers he refers quite often to uh, my books and blogs and stuff on his, uh, you know, on his coverage. Uh, of course, they're all happy doing what they do. I, mean, I thought it was interesting with the CRPG addict. I don't know how much of this has played up at all, but he says that he actually is addicted to RPGs, you know, that he... There was this this post he had one time where he says like I, I I wish I wasn't I wish I would do something else but I just I can't stop playing these games. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know I don't know him really well personally. You know I think about somebody being addicted I I think they're well that to me means they're unable to have a normal life right they can't hold down a job and they can't have a relationship with the uh, significant relationships in their life because they're too you know it's literally they they can't do it because they're they can't stop playing or you know, can't stop the, uh, you know, the whatever the addictive behavior is. I really think it's. I don't know about uh, Chet's, you know, Chet's point of view on that, but you know, I really hesitate to call a game addictive, you know, for that because for me it just kind of brings up, you know, I don't want gaming associated with alcoholism or drugs. You know, there's plenty of that already in the in the pop culture, and I, I don't want to contribute to that idea uh yeah i just say if a game is really fun and engaging you want to play it but uh, you know i don't know unless you have a really crappy job or crappy family you're not going to want to uh choose the game over them right <laughs> well but for the people with crappy families i mean then you know. <laughs> well, you, that's not there's a lot more going on there than the game being fun <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's all about the Fortnite. I keep hearing this on the news, right? It's such a big concern, you know. All the kids are playing Fortnite, and they're, uh, you know, what it's going to be the, this is this is the beginning of the end, right? The the apocalypse, and this is this is worse than crack cocaine, uh, or this is worse than meth. I'm like, come on, give me a break. You know, have you ever seen a meth addict? <laughs> well, but if this yeah. is the apocalypse, all the kids will be well prepared, right? Because they've played for, so much Fortnite. Oh yeah, they'll be. Yeah, anything new. I mean, we go all the way back to D&D, right? It was the same. Whatever yeah, the absolutely. kids these days are into, it's it's not what we were into and that would have been that would have been bad enough, you know, but <laughs> this new thing. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, I mean. Uh, you know, all the people I know who uh play D&D, that that kind of keeps them out of trouble. In a lot of cases, right? It's not getting them into trouble. I mean, it's just from the book, it seems like you do have a little bit of a, like, kids these days get off my lawn kind of attitude with all their, like, oh, yeah. action RPGs and you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, cutscenes and stuff. Like, who needs that stuff? Yeah, I hope that comes across as kind of tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, you know, there's definitely a generational divide or two uh, in any kind of genre of, of games, right? But, yeah, you certainly see that. I was kind of joking, jokingly saying that my... The game I hate the most is the first Diablo, because yeah, that's really where I see is the, the turning point. <laughs> and it's like after that, everything. And uh, also with uh, Skyrim, you know, I like the it's kind of just kind of as a joke, you know, talk about how <laughs> Skyrim is just this terrible game. Uh, but yeah, it really changes the nature of the game. 
really more probably Skyrim more than uh, what's the other one that everybody always talks about? Uh, super hard. Uh, uh, Dark I Souls. Could say, yeah, Dark Souls. You know, games of that sort. To me, they're not even really role playing games because it's instead of the characters learning from experience, it's really just you learning how to, you know, control your character better. Well, you know, what buttons to mash, basically, right? And here's the, the special moves to do and the timing. It's really more about your dexterity as a player uh, more than it is about this sort of learning from uh, experience that, you know, we talked about. So I don't know if it's, to me, it's almost kind of an apples and oranges thing after a while. I mean, can you even compare Dark Souls uh, to Ultima? <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't work, right? But it, it's just it's coming at the expense, I think, of those single player uh, turn based RPGs. And, I mean, there for a long time, it's just the very words "turn based" uh, was enough just to everybody would laugh at you, right? Who wants that? It's boring. <laughs> you want action, action, action. <laughs> uh, but we see like Divinity Original Sin two. I mean, I just uh, I love that. Not just the game, but the fact that they were really able to show, no, no, turn-based is awesome, right? It's such a big hit and really proved that there's plenty of people that uh, like that more tactical experience. I'm curious what you think about this, because one of my sort of philosophical difficulties with CRPGs is that I feel like since the characters get more powerful the longer you play a lot of times you don't actually have to learn the game systems that well in order to beat the game because your your characters have just gotten so powerful that you don't need to yeah. learn how to use all the spells or, or you know use the best strategies and things like that. Um, I feel this way when I read the CRPG addict and he's talking about these games and he's and I'm like, oh my God, I, I was so bad at this game compared to him. I just played for so long that, you know, there was no way that I could help but win it. Yeah, I know it's you. It's sort of uh, the God phenomenon or whatever you want to call it. A lot of, especially games that'll have a place where you can go and grind. You know, basically just go fight a bunch of low-level, easy battles until you level up, and then you go back and <laughs> defeat the the boss without having to imp- implement any real tactics or strategies. Yeah, yeah, I certainly see that. I, I think it's, you know, one solution to that is to do what I call move the goalposts, uh, or uh, what they call it, uh, level scaling. So just the monsters are always a little bit tougher than you. They're always a little bit, a little bit higher in level. Uh, the problem with that, though, I think there's it's it's kind of satisfying in a way uh, when you can go back to one of these monsters that really gave you such a hard time and just you know kick its butt. Uh, I think that's you know I think it's great for kids too to kind of teach them, you know, about the values of just being persistent, and steadily improving, and don't get too discouraged that you weren't able to defeat the boss. The first time, right? Uh, go, go learn some stuff. <laughs> go learn some stuff, kid. Come back. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe do better the the next time. But I'll tell you something that, that really impressed me about this Druid Stone game. I don't want to sound like I'm just a commercial for <laughs> them, but uh, but I like the way they handle difficulty. And this is something I do talk a lot about in the book because it's it's really one of the key things for a game designer. If if you don't get that balance right. Your game is going to stink, right? It's not going to be any, any it's just going to be frustrating or it's going to be too easy, right? It's, I think it's kind of underappreciated art uh, to have a game that's just so well balanced where it's just hard enough uh, that you feel challenged, but you don't feel just uh, like you say that, <laughs> like, oh, damn it. I don't have to, or I guess that'd be a case of it being too easy, right? It's, I, I can, uh, 
grind enough and then come back and just one-shot the boss. Uh, but anyway, what's cool about this Druidstone game is you they give you these bonus objectives you can work towards. And instead of just being like uh, an achievement or a badge or just something kind of meaningless, it actually gives you additional quest rewards. So it basically makes your, gives your characters gems that you can make your uh, party more powerful with. But it really gives you an incentive not just to play the level, get through it, but really to play it well. See what I'm saying? And really yeah, yeah. leverage all your tactics and the, the abilities of your characters. And you know, I just think that's magnificent design. I mean, it's just way more advanced than just saying, well, why don't you play on hard mode and we'll just double all the monsters' uh, hit points and make them uh, hit harder. You know, that, this is a way, I like this uh, method way better because <laughs> you do have that option. You know, if you're just really struggling, uh, you just want to get through the level, you could, you could shoot for that. Uh, or, you know, if you do want to uh, challenge yourself more, you can go for those those bonus objectives. So I like to, I like to see that, and you know, I think that should be the way going forward. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about this. So um, toward the end of the book, you talk about something called Robot Cash, which is some sort of cryptocurrency plan where you can resell your games. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, that would probably be Shane talking about that because it's not ringing any bells i'll just read you what it says it says robot cash with names like brian fargo and nolan bushnell involved hopes to be a steam competitor that takes a much smaller cut per digital game sold resold games will result in additional payment to the game's publisher or developer robot cash is creating its own cryptocurrency called iron a nod to the iron bank from game of thrones yeah yeah but i i would need to ask shane about that or do you know you don't know anything about that yeah, I'm I'm sure Shane that this sounds like it's from his uh, chapter, yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, I've heard him talk about that off and on. Yeah, they don't a lot of people don't like Steam for you know several several reasons. Uh or the same there's some problems with Kickstarter and what was it they were using Fig. You know, they still don't want to make a game centric uh system and Yeah, I think it's in some ways I guess uh this, the deck is stacked a little bit even now against some of the smaller studios and they don't like having to give up so much of their, basically their money, right? Handed over to uh, these other, other uh, streaming services. So yeah, I don't really know how that's, how that's working out for them. Yeah. I mean, I have some friends who made a, um, like iPhone, um, RPG kind of game and yeah, Mm -hmm. it was really, it was really, it was a great game. But just watching what they had to go through, and it was oh yeah, the Apple stores, the Apple stores, yeah, horrific. Yeah, I've just heard many, many stories just about how difficult it is to even to get on there, and you're just seeing a smaller share of your uh, revenue. Which that's kind of the you we're talking about all the way back to the Goldbox series and uh, Baldur's Gate. That's one of the problems they had because they had to, on the one hand, uh, pay all these licensing fees to uh, TSR. Or a Wizards of the Coast, right, for the rights to use the uh, the D and D stuff. So that was already a cut, and then the publisher gets a cut, and I guess with something like Steam, they get a cut. You know, so pretty soon it's like you, you might be paying sixty dollars for that game, but you know the developers might only end up with a small fraction, and that certainly doesn't seem right. Yeah, so I don't know. Hopefully things will improve. Um. But yeah, I mean, that's something that really came through reading your book is that it's never been easy making CRPGs, you know, no matter what era you're in, uh, you know, it's always a big challenge. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, any game development book you pick up will tell you that uh, making a role-playing game is one of the hardest kind of games to make. Uh, and a lot of that difficulty, it's not just coming up with a good story and characters. That seems like relatively easy stuff. <laughs> you know, the hard part is just getting that difficulty right, working out all the, the balancing. Uh, so you kind of avoid the problems you were talking about. You don't want the characters to get too powerful too quickly. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you don't want to make it so hard they just get frustrated and turn away, right? And, uh, you want them to be using those cool abilities and all that stuff you came up with. So there's a lot of playtesting. Yeah, that's probably the big difference between a good and a great CRPG or even a regular RPG, right? It's just how much work went into balancing that, playtesting it, refining it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because you, you make the point that so many des designers seem to be really impressed by their, their beautiful prose or their great storyline <laughs> or something. Oh. That... Yeah, it's painful sometimes. And, you know, I can't imagine what these how they must feel when they see these uh, Let's Plays where somebody's just <laughs> rapidly clicking through the dialogue to get to the game. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, this is coming from a writer. You know, I'm an English professor. I love uh, great prose. It's what I do, but... You know, I can see when it's – in creative writing, they talk about show, don't tell. You know, it's one of the big mantras. You know, don't just tell uh, – don't just tell us things. Show show the characters doing it or uh, don't just say that this house is scary. <laughs> show, you know, describe the house in such a way that makes us scared uh, reading it. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of problems with uh, writing in these games. The expository – exposition dumps are just rampant. Uh, the uh, – you know, every where to even begin? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's probably where I would put the, the. If I was making a game myself, that's you know, as long as the story uh, makes sense, you know, and the it's at least a few likable characters, and you know, you put them in, you, you present them with some kind of a challenge, and give them give the player and the characters a good reason to want to uh, resolve it. Now, I think you're uh, you're fine with that, but it's just when these critics and reviewers. Uh, you know, especially the ones in the magazines or the blogs, you know, the more text-heavy ones. Uh, there's only so much you can really say about uh, the the gameplay, right? I say, well, well, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what else do you say? Uh, whereas they can really spill just endless ink on the the character arcs and the the story and the lore and the setting, and you know, so that's the kind of stuff that tends to get magnified in reviews of the games and the stuff that really matters to players doesn't really get much coverage because it is more challenging. I think you really have to know a game well uh, to be really super well uh, to be able to talk about the, the gameplay mechanics uh, versus just, you know, like you say, the, the sort of easy uh, back of the back copy stuff about the story. Right. I wanted to ask you, you know, I looked at your, uh, your blog and one of the entries I saw, it's called what's wrong with Matt chat. And oh man, that's going back. <laughs> you were sort of lamenting that um, you know you're, you're you're putting out all this great content with all these amazing designers and everything, and you know some some like somebody just posts like their opinion about a game or something is getting more views. I was just curious, um, like what do you think about that now, or has that situation improved at all, or like do you have any thoughts about that uh, that blog post? Oh yeah, I mean I still think about that. I was just watching. I like to watch these. Uh, these video bloggers, whatever you want to call them, where they're talking about their survive, survival skills, like how to survive out in the woods. 
<laughs> I was listening to one, and he was talking about the same thing. And the sort of the dangers is Dave Canterbury, if you're curious. Uh, he's a pretty successful guy. I mean, he's got, I don't know how many tens of thousands of views he's got. He's not huge. He was on the Discovery Channel for a while with a show. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he talked about that and said that one of the worst things you can do as sort of a social media presence or personality is, is start comparing yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. And because it probably just is going to get really discouraging. And I definitely agree with him on that. You know, just the other day, I, you, you look at these, uh, you look for your videos and you feel like, well, okay, I'm, this video is doing pretty good. You know, it's already got like 600 views on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look at some other person's video and you're like, well, how the hell? Like 70,000 views for that, you know? I mean, what the heck is going on? And, you know, you just start feeling like, a, do they just know something I don't? Or is it just some some indefinable quality that they possess? <laughs> they, not even entertain the thought. Maybe they're paying for these bots to come on and, and inflate their numbers. You know, just like, what the heck? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I don't really have a – that's the – you know, number one thing I get asked all the time is like from uh, especially students that are interested in doing this kind of work is like, what do I do to get my numbers up? And, you know, how, how do I build a big, big audience and, and all this stuff? And I kind <laughs> of like, don't ask me. <laughs> uh, but I think, too, it's, you know, if you're always chasing, chasing the uh, chasing after the masses, right, going for that mainstream appeal. I don't know how often that really works out for people. You know, I think you might be like I have a. I'm I'm satisfied, and in fact, a delighted to have my audience. You know, for Matt Chat and these books, they're they're great people. They're the kind of people that I like to hang out with. You know, I think keeping them happy is a lot more important to me than you know attracting a ten thousand you know casual people that might just not even really care about what I'm talking about. Well, and so often it seems like those really popular things, they are really snarky or really, you know, stoking anger or, you know, things like that. And, you know, like, I don't see how that would, that wouldn't be, (laughs) you know, that's just not compatible with, uh, you know, talking to game designers about their process, you know, I mean, it doesn't feed into that kind of. Yeah, sometimes uh, people don't even want to come on the show because they they assume it's going to be that kind of deal now. I'm like, no, 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 just go watch a couple of my previous interviews. You'll see. It's not like uh, I'm trying to catch you or, you know, embarrass you or whatever. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly a lot of that going on. And I think, too, just kind of going all the way back to the whole problem with the single-player RPGs and, and thinking they were they were dead, right? There's just, you know, the mainstream is, doesn't, doesn't care about this stuff. You know, never will. You'll, you'll have a lot more successful uh, chance if you can get... Uh, you know, a bunch of videos about uh, Legend of Zelda or Pokemon or, or Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, that's going to get a lot more. There's a lot bigger audience for that. But yeah, I don't know. What do, what do you think? I, I, I tend to think it kind of gets counterbalanced by the fact that so many other YouTubers are doing that, covering that same material. You know, what, what, how's your Fortnite, Fortnite video going to stand out against the, what, millions of videos up there? Well, yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know about Fortnite particularly, but I, I I do think that we're sort of seeing a turn that for a long time people have built audiences by being outrageous or stoking anger right. or things like that. But I feel like that's starting to turn now where, um, you know, the, the, 
the people do, you know, like there's so much anger everywhere that you can go anywhere for it. So people aren't really that loyal to any particular source of outrage. And yeah, the, the, the yeah, people shallow, who, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. I mean, yeah, it's just a real kind of a shallow thing to do, right? Just let me see what kind of outrageous uh, thing I can say to this person and get a few clickbait, <laughs> get some good clickbait out there. But <laughs> uh, I don't know. Is it is it the Howard Stern effect? Yeah, but I so I just wanted to say to you, you know, because I've I've as I said, I've been a fan of your videos for years, and I just I just love what you do, and I wouldn't want oh, I just you. love your uh, your passion, and I wouldn't want you to uh, to try to like change that to chase some other audience. Oh, no, you, know? Yeah. you know, if I have a change now, don't worry about it. But yeah, that was a decision I made pretty early on was I just going to keep everything family friendly. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to be dropping the F bomb <laughs> on the show or just acting like a, you know, I do kind of get goofy. I won't lie, but <laughs> not do anything too outrageous. Just got to be myself, I guess. I guess that's the key is just, just kind of be myself, being authentic. Uh, I wouldn't talk to these – when I talk to developers, I have a lot of respect for them. You know, it would never occur to me to try to be uh, rude or, you know, again, keep coming back to something that's embarrassing. And usually I'll, I'll even ask them before the interview, look, is there anything that you're uncomfortable talking about? You know, and if they tell me, I, <laughs> I won't bring it up. <laughs> so hopefully that is uh, – Sort of cemented my reputation amongst the uh, developer community, where the, you know, some, you know, Matt Chat, Matt Martin's a guy they can trust. Uh, they shouldn't have any uh, misgivings about going on my show. Do you feel pretty plugged in now to the developer community? Like you're, I don't know, do you socialize with any of the people, or you're friends with them, or? I'd probably, uh, I like to think so. I mean, we've got some uh, Facebook channels with some fairly well-known developers. I try to make a habit of not pestering them. <laughs> insinuating myself somehow but uh yeah i think there's uh yeah i think that there's some love there for uh for matt chat one of these days i'd love to go to uh the uh, game developer conference or game developer convention it's been a long time since i've been there but i'm, I'm almost kind of wor worried like I, I wonder if people would recognize me <laughs> and i wouldn't uh remember who they were it's <laughs> almost to that point now like oh yeah you're because i'm pretty terrible with names so I, basically, I'd have to do my own homework, watch all my <laughs> interviews again, make sure I know who everybody is and their stories so that if that <laughs> were to happen. I mean, is that an irrational fear to have? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's probably ways. I, I always find it's good to, uh, if there's someone you don't know, you can't remember who they are, you introduce them to someone else, and then they'll say who they are, and then that kind of clues you in. Mm -hmm. You know, you introduce them to a third person who just who, who just walked up or something. Yeah, this is, uh, hi, this is, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that probably would never happen, but it's the sort of thing you think about. Well, speaking of love for Matt Chat, I, I, I personally appreciated that on page, uh, 464, uh, you used my Richard Garriott quote, um, from, uh, from my interview with Richard Garriott. So that's why I always yeah. read the footnotes. So I can see if uh, see if anyone quoted my interview. Or, yeah, see yeah. those wonderful footnotes. Yeah, I'm on the page. What did you say? Where did you say it was? Uh, it's the quote from Richard Garrett. He's talking about how so many um, you know MMOs and things. You don't have to think. You just kind of like click the you know you just follow the oh, yeah. sign on the map. And yeah, that's from my 
in the footnote it says Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So I was like, oh, oh wow. That's a good resource. Yeah. <laughs> you're no longer exploring. You're no longer actually problem solving. You're no longer actually thinking about why or how should I interact in a particular way in this particular situation. Oh, he's talking about the mindless. Yeah, just mindlessly completing quest after quest. Yeah, that's a good quotation. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, he kind of says he says that in a lot of interviews, so I don't know how much credit I can take for that. But, uh, you know, I appreciate it that uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy showed up in your footnotes. Well, it did inspire me. I've been going back to uh, some World of Warcrafting and thinking about uh, that quote or that sentiment. How many times I've, I've probably leveled up. I probably don't even want to think about it. However <laughs> many characters. And yeah, usually you get to this point where you just, you don't even read the quest text. You just see what, what do I have to do to, you know, to achieve this and move on. You're always like in this big rush uh, to get through. And there's not really very good reasons to care. Like, why would you even read the quest text? It's not essential for the game. You know, it's not going to impact how well you do on the quest or anything like that. But uh, this last time I've played through, I made, I did, I am making a point of reading everything. Yeah, I do find it a little more rewarding. Uh, so I think Garriott is is right there. If, if they could find a way to make it a little more compelling, where it didn't feel like an obligation, you know what I'm saying? Well, I really liked what you said, where you know, like we said in Pool of Radiance, all that stuff was in a little book, and you could just. Yeah, yeah. You know, kick back on your couch with your feet up and, and read it. You know, you didn't have to sit there staring at the screen reading these huge blocks of text. Well, that's, yeah, that's something like that's exactly right. I've been looking for a while. Uh, this this World of Warcraft game has just gotten so huge and there's so many. The story just seems, uh, you know, like I don't even know how to get started trying to figure out what the heck's going on <laughs> in this thing. You know, I, I, I probably should just see if there's some novels out that, uh, we sort of just break it down in a novel format. Because that's that's how I got interested. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, when we were growing up playing these fantasy games, we're reading, like, the Dragonlance novels. You know, you read Tolkien. Uh, you know, most of that comes from the reading, uh, not so much the games. You know, you, you kind of have all that in the background, in the back of your mind, as you're playing the games, right? But it's not like the DM's always, uh, you know, explaining everything. They don't have to, right? Because you got that shared uh, experience, that shared fiction, I guess. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Did you? Ever, do you think you would ever write any uh, any fantasy fiction? Oh, probably. <laughs> it, that could be very intimidating. Talk, talking about comparing yourself to others, though. You know, I just always struck every time I go into Barnes and Noble, just like, wow, there's so much, so many authors, so many novels I've never heard of, and. I'm sure they're all wonderful, you know. What <laughs> how could I possibly make my uh, my stuff stand out? But uh, yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. I kind of dabbled with it, sure. Well, you know, the last uh, I just interviewed Jeffrey Deaver, and his most recent book is sort of a, a crime thriller set mm -hmm. in the video game industry. So oh, maybe yeah. you could write something like that because you you have all this inside knowledge about uh, game designers and things. I did have that experience as reading a Ready Player One. Yeah, uh, yeah, recently. And I mean, that was it almost got annoying because everybody's like, Matt, Bart, you've got to read this book. You've got to read. It's like they're almost like forcing it down my throat. And <laughs> so like, I don't have to read anything. <laughs> and I finally read it. And, yeah, the whole time I'm reading and I'm just like, man, I could have written this. I could have, I could have, you know, I'm sure everybody has that experience of a certain age, you know, of a certain uh, background. But yeah, it really kind of felt like something I could have written. You almost kind of uh, kicking yourself for not doing it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
All right. So now we're pretty much out of time. So um, I think we should start wrapping this up pretty soon. Do you have any um, any final thoughts or uh, just anything else you wanted to talk about? I don't. I don't know. What do you think? Is there something uh, we talked about the book and the channel? I don't know. I guess that's about all I can come up with. Uh, all right, great. Yeah, so let's wrap it up then. And I am looking forward to uh, if you ever make a, a CRPG. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to playing it because uh, you obviously know a lot about well, CRPG I, yeah, I, design. I, I can say one other thing, I guess, now that I've thought about it. You know, so one, another one of the questions I get asked a lot is, you know, what are some good games to play? You know, we, we grew up, we, a lot of us had a certain computer like a Commodore 64 or a, a DOS machine or a few lucky ones had the Apple II, right? And so I think one of the great things about a book like this is that you can really flip through it and see games that you might not have heard about before. And I try to write in this, I really try to make it clear which ones hold up well, what it takes to, to get that game and to play it now. And that's where I really kind of want to shine the light on a, a website called GOG.com, goodoldgames.com. Because they actually make a lot of these old, old games available. So all you have to do is just click the link, install the game, boom, you're good to go. You don't have to worry with emulators and things. Because that was one of the problems I had with the, the first edition. It was just so hard getting these games to work on a modern computer, right? And so that's basically trivial nowadays. So really, instead of just looking at a book like this as a bunch of obsolete games, uh, you might actually see some games that look interesting. You go back and play those very easily now. I so see there's a whole world of games that, you know, we... As we talked about the start of this interview, right? Even I haven't really played all the way through. <laughs> Maybe Chester has. <laughs> uh, but yeah, these are games. It's, it's not just the history, right? Th these are games you might enjoy now. I also think just even if you're not planning to play any of these games, or like you know, especially the older ones, that you you sort of highlight what the interesting feature of of a lot of these games are and so you know like i i've sort of harbored fantasies of oh i would love to make my own crpg someday and so i went through your book and underlines all the like you know oh well, this game has these attributes and this this game has these attributes and these oh, skills and, you yeah. know this here's the standout features from all these different games so if i ever get to make my own crpg that is can... great to hear you say that yeah because that's one of the things i had in mind writing this i kept imagining these uh aspiring developers and designers reading it and so i try to mention things from every game that you know, maybe it was something that worked out well, but for whatever reason, just kind of fell off the radar. Nobody ever imitated it, even though it was a good idea. Just kind of didn't get enough attention, whatever. And so pointing those out, and also the stuff that maybe that it failed, or the game uh, failed, but nevertheless, it was a really good idea, and it really should have been that somebody should follow up on that. Yeah, so if there are any aspiring CRPG designers listening to this, definitely check out this book and, uh, you know, looking forward to what games everyone yeah, out there comes this. out with, too. I've done so much of the work for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> just just read the book and you'll get all kinds of tips like <laughs> do's and don'ts, paths that are underdeveloped, uh, stuff that's been overdone, you know. Yeah, definitely listen to Matt Barton. He knows what he's talking about. He's basically the force behind Wasteland, too. So, uh, you know. <laughs> Speaking yeah. with authority here. All right, so Matt, so let's uh, let's wrap this up there then. So we've been speaking with Matt Barton, 
and this new book that everyone should check out. It's called Dungeons and Desktops, Second Edition. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Been a been a pleasure and an honor, sir. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Matt Barton for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.